Now, throughout history, there have been um, many era-defining moments, life-changing events. So you could think of the invention of the, the wheel. You can think of the printing press. You can think of penicillin. You can think of the light bulb, the internet, moments that sort of changed history, changed the course of history. And hopefully this Tuesday, right, the largest vaccine rollout in UK history, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, hopefully this will be era-defining, changing for us, bring some normality back to life in 2021. That's our hope. Wouldn't that be great? But what I want to suggest to you is that as you look back through history and all these era-defining life-changing moments, none of them, none of them compare to the era-defining, life-changing, momentous day that we have just heard read out in our passage. Back in AD 33, just outside Jerusalem, in the empty darkness of Jesus Christ's tomb. There is a lot of sadness right now, 2020, what a year it's been. We've still got a month or so to go. But I put it to you that all our longings right now for a brighter future, for a better world, all our longings for an end to pain and suffering, all our longings for sort of meaning and purpose and direction to our lives can all be found in these verses and the most momentous day in human history. So without any further ado, come with me to the passage. Let's dive straight in. Three parts to it. Here's the first. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen. Verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. The tomb of Jesus. Jesus, who was crucified. We saw this last week. Died and was buried. His tomb sealed, Roman soldiers guarding it so there can be no shenanigans with the disciples coming to steal the body. But, verse 2, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I don't know if you remember when Joe Calzaghi um, went to be um, knighted. Is it at Buckingham Palace? That's where it happens. I mean, Joe Calzaghi, he was the um, undefeated super middleweight champion of the world, a real hard nut. And as he went up to be knighted by the queen, he was just trembling. He was like so nervous. The reporters asked him, why are you so nervous? It's the queen just before this majesty. He was shaking, and this is a little bit about what's going on here with the guards, these hardy Roman soldiers face the power and majesty of an angel, the white-hot purity, the dazzling white and lightning, and they are virtually scared to death. Not that the angels have come to bring terror or fear. They've come to bring good news. Verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. No one expected this. Not the women, 
not the disciples. Even though Jesus had predicted it three times, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20, on the third day, the Son of Man will be raised to life. No one got it. No one understood it. And so the angel rolls back the stone, not for Jesus to get out, right? He's already risen. Rolls back the stone so the women can go in and see for themselves. It's empty. He's not there. And so the women hurry from the tomb in verse 8, afraid yet filled with joy. Is it true? Can it be so? Is Jesus really risen from the dead? They run to tell the disciples, verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings. What an understatement. Hiya, I'm back. And immediately, what do the women do? They fall at his feet. They grasp his feet. He's really, he's alive. It's physical. And they worshipped him. Because now they understand for the first time who this man, Jesus Christ, really is. Not just a human being, he is. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He is the Son of God himself. The author of life, the defeater of death, the Lord of the universe. We worship you. Did you know that because there have been so many seismic events over this past year, 2020, that Oxford Dictionaries are not having a word of the year, they are having words of an unprecedented year. That's what they call it. They can't, they can't define it in one year, just so, in one word. So much has happened. What word, what words, plural, would you use to try and capture what Jesus Christ has just achieved? I mean, think, I mean, maybe if we're Christian here, we've heard this all before, but just think about it for a moment. Death, death is the great leveler. Death is the shadow that hangs over every human being, a shadow that hangs over you, me. We are all going to die. Since the very beginning, when humanity turned its back on God in rebelling against him, it has been death, 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 for everyone, without doubt. And now, for the first time in human history, there is a man, there is Jesus Christ, death, 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 life. Darkness, 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 the darkness of death, the shadow of death, the darkness of the tomb, light. Pain, suffering, death and destruction, disease and decay, joy. As Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, never to die again. And so no wonder Jesus says in verse 10, do not be afraid. The angel said it in verse 5, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What is there to be afraid of? If Jesus Christ is in your life, and not even death can stand 
in your way. Do not be afraid, Jesus says to the women. Yes, your head may be spinning right now. You may wonder what on earth is going on. Do not be afraid. You're absolutely right to clasp my feet, to worship me. I am who you think I am, the Son of God, the Messiah. But get up. I have a task for you. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so it is for every follower of Jesus Christ today. Do not be afraid. For what tomorrow holds, do not be afraid. For what 2021 holds, when you'll get the vaccine, whether pain or suffering comes your way, whether you find yourselves in terrible darkness in the year ahead, do not be afraid. I have gone before you. I've been born into this world of disease and destruction, death and decay. And I have faced it all head on. The pain and suffering of this world, the pain and suffering of the cross for your sin, for everyone's sin. The darkness of the tomb, the darkness, the horror of death itself, and I have broken through the other side. Life light, joy for all who trust in me. There really is nothing to be afraid of if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the one risen from the dead. Well, look, that's the first thing to see from this passage, that Jesus is risen. The second thing to see from verses 11 to 15 is that not everyone accepts it. Let me read verses 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Bribery, lies, cover-up. That is how the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders of the day, the one who taught about the Messiah, were waiting for the Messiah. That is how they continue to react to Jesus Christ. Even after he has been... (laughs) Risen, raised from the dead. And this report of everything that had happened, I'd love to know how full an account the guards gave to the chief priest. Did they mention the earthquake? Did they mention the angel? Did they mention being scared to death? Or did they just say, hey, the tomb's empty, not sure what went on? Either way, the chief priests that teach the law, they are having nothing to do with or any sense of Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead. They come up with this lie that the disciples have stolen the body. We know it's a lie because they pay the guards a large sum of hush money. And even if the disciples had stolen it, well, why not just go and find them and arrest them? Hey, here's the body. The whole Christian thing, whole Christian movement, dead before it's even got going. They don't. Because that's not what happened. Because Jesus Christ has risen. 
It's just that not everyone accepts it. The objective evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually from a legal point of view beyond any reasonable doubt. The empty tomb, and to this day, the bones of Jesus Christ have never been found. The multiple eyewitness sightings, the women, the disciples, we'll see in a moment, 500 others. You could have asked them about it at the time. No, it's a lie, it never happened. Christianity would never take off. The changed lives of the disciples. They are running away from Jesus on the cross. They're in fear. They start boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ risen from the dead, even at pain of death. Why would you do that for a lie? The ultimate example, Saul, a persecutor of the church, hated Jesus, hated Christians. Suddenly, he becomes this great evangelist to the whole Gentile world after he saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The objective evidence for the resurrection is, all, is there for all to see and investigate. But the chief priests, these elders, we've seen it throughout Matthew's gospel, they have never been interested in the evidence and the facts about Jesus Christ. Always questioning Jesus. Always thinking they know best. Testing Jesus even though he always responds truthfully according to God's word, embodies in his very life the things that he is preaching. Plotting to kill Jesus in chapter 12. After he did what? He healed a man. On the Sabbath, it's crazy, it's ugly. They never deny Jesus' power to heal the sick, to drive out demons, to do incredible miracles. They simply assign that power to the devil. They just will not face up to reality. And so often that remains the case today. The English scholar Brooke Westcott, literary giant, Greek erudite, studied the scriptures for years in light of history. Dr. Westcott made this observation about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historical incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the anteceded, the prior assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Now, I admit that's not the easiest of sentences to get your head around first time, scholars for you, but do you get the gist of what he's saying? He's saying the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is there for all to see. Beyond any reasonable doubt, no other incident in history is better supported. And so the only reason some people don't accept it is because of some prior assumption that automatically rules it out. But that will mean me giving up control of my life to Jesus Christ. And I can't do that. But that will mean massive lifestyle changes for me. Something I'm not prepared to do right now. But that will mean admitting that I am wrong. 
that I've got so much of life wrong. And I don't want to do that. But miracles are impossible. Science explains everything. It must be false. It takes great humility to believe in Jesus Christ. Because it means admitting you're wrong. The way you see life, see yourself, the way you've been living your life, and that is so hard for any of us to do. To say to Jesus, look, you're in charge, I'm not. You're in control, I'm not. You get to define me, not myself. You get to tell me what's best for my life, not me. That is not an easy thing to do. I'm sorry for trying to define myself. I'm sorry for trying to live my life without you. Please forgive me. That takes great humility. And until you or I are prepared to do that, then we will keep trying to explain Jesus away, explain the resurrection away, despite all the evidence right before our eyes. So if you're someone here looking into Christian things, it is great to have you with us. Do you mind me asking you what might be the prior assumption for you right now? And how does it stack up to all the evidence you see here? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's many of us here, don't be surprised then if not everyone accepts the resurrection. Family members, friends, colleagues, not everyone did so back then, not everyone will do so today. We're told to expect it. You should be surprised if everyone did accept it. As long as there are proud, controlling, sinful hearts, as is the case with every human being, there will always be difficulty in believing this. That Jesus Christ is risen. And life is about worshipping him. Well, if that's the second thing to see from this passage, there's one more thing to see. The final thing is verses 16 to 20. And that is to tell others. Jesus risen, so tell others. Because for all those who do humble themselves before God and do admit they've been wrong about Jesus, that he is risen, that salvation is found in him, well, there is joy, there is forgiveness, there is resurrection life to come, and there is a mission that Jesus sends us on now. Jesus says in verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I actually preached on these two verses um, all the way back at the start of term, for those of you who were with us uh, back then. That was for our Vision Sunday. And we saw how these two verses are the biblical foundation for everything we're about as a church. So I'd like to point you to that sermon. It's on the front page of the website if you want to find out more about what we're about and why our vision is what it is. What I want us to do now is pick up on the why of this mission and the how. The why is in verse 18. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all nations. You see, the therefore, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Not the Pharisees, not the chief priests, not the elders, not any other guru you can think of in this world, and no sort of thought leader today. Me. One of the privileges of living in the West right now is that, well, there's just a social mobility that many of us can enjoy. We pretty much get to choose which degree we study. We have a whole range of jobs to choose from. We can transfer from one job to the other. We can have a side hustle as well. And yet, at the same time, with all this choice, with all this movement, many of us can never really have a firm idea of what job is best for us or what we're really put on earth for. And that can be hugely unsettling, hugely dissatisfying, but can you see what Jesus Christ is saying here? Here is one thing you can be absolutely sure of. Of what life is about, of what, why you are here if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be sure of it because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and he says, go make disciples of all nations. There is no greater thing you can do for another human being than go tell them the good news about Jesus Christ and him being risen from the dead. His life, his death, his resurrection, how all our longings for a brighter future, better world are found in him. How all meaning, purpose, direction in life is found in him. And can we be clear? Uniquely found in him. He is the only person to deal with sin once for all. He is the only person in the history of humanity who has defeated death never to die again. Just to be clear, this is not about us needing to convert people, forcing people against their will to accept Jesus. This is not proselytizing people. There's no aggression here, no forcefulness. Jesus wants us to respect people, respect where they're coming from, respect their beliefs, their current worldviews. But Jesus is still saying he wants us to tell people about him because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Go make disciples of all nations. But you say, I'm too nervous. It's too difficult. I barely know what I believe myself. And people just don't seem to be too interested in Jesus today. Actually, quite a lot of people are quite anti-him. Anti-Christians, anti-the church. What am I to do? How am I, how am I meant to go about this? Take a look at the final sentence of the gospel. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has not left us alone in this task. He is always with us through his Holy Spirit, going before us, opening up opportunities to speak of Jesus, guiding conversations, giving us the words to say, drawing people to Jesus Christ. We are not alone. He is always with us, always with the church. He will help us to fulfill this task, give us everything we need. Just think over the past 2,000 years how much has already been achieved. It's just 11 disciples back then in this moment. It's not even 12. They're a man down. 
Judas has gone. They seem to be in the middle of nowhere on a mountain no one knows the name of. And in verse 17, we're told that some of them doubted. And Jesus is going to send these motley 11 into the world to change the world, to go make disciples of all nations. Yes, that is just the sort of people that Jesus sends out. And 50 days later, it's 3,000 believers. And by AD 300, it's 10 million believers. And in the last century alone, the church has grown from 600 million believers in 1910 to 2.3 billion in 2011. Today, one-third of the world's population profess faith in Jesus Christ. We are not alone. Jesus Christ is with us. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, we can't do this alone. But I will never leave you alone. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, of course, carol services are coming up next couple of Sundays, 13th and 20th. They're in your diaries, right? What an opportunity to put this into practice, to obey Jesus' command here and to tell others about Jesus Christ. Who are you going to invite? Who could you pray for right now? Who's the person that comes into your mind? Who are the people God's put in your life, maybe just recently, who you can invite along? Don't miss this opportunity. Let's make the most of it. Family services in the morning, contemporary, traditional in the evening. To share with others the most momentous, era-defining, life-changing moment in human history. Not everyone will accept it. Don't worry about that. People say no to the invites. That's fine. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't let that put you off. Don't let that diminish your zeal. There really is no greater gift you can give any friend, colleague this Christmas than the opportunity to hear the message of Jesus Christ for themselves. This is his mission for us. This is his command. Let me encourage us to be obedient to it. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've been teaching us through the Gospel of Matthew and here at the end, this most momentous, era-defining, life-changing moment in history when Jesus Christ broke through death, came out the other side, raised to life, resurrection life, never to die again. We know not everyone's going to accept it and we shouldn't be put off by that. But would we heed this great commission to go make disciples of all nations, to obey everything you commanded us. And I pray, Father, that you would use us, certainly in the week ahead, if not for the rest of our lives, to share this wonderful message with all that we can. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.